2: We often hear of incredible scientific claims that would change everything if true. Bacteria are growing in space, or killer asteroids are headed for Earth. We're going to try to sort the fantastic from the fanciful in such claims and hear why some people insist in believing, despite a whole heap of evidence to the contrary. It's our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check, on Big Picture Science. The world is a rumor mill filled with extraordinary claims. I'm serious. Take
3: a spoonful of kohlrabi seeds every day. It'll cure baldness. My cousin Joey did it and now his hair is down to his knees.
4: So I was camping in the woods and off a ways
3: I saw a glowing light. It was an alien ship. Mm, I guess it could have been another campfire. Nope, it was definitely extraterrestrial.
1: And some stories are passed through media outlets under the loose heading, News.
2: I read that there are bacteria, living bacteria, growing on the outside of the International Space Station, in space.
1: That one was actually reported in the news. More on those space bacteria later.
2: Which gets us to our point. Some claims of extraordinary events are obviously so far out, your eyebrows raise faster than a professional poker player. They just don't sound credible, and when you look into it a little bit more, well, you find out they're not.
1: But some extraordinary scientific claims, when tested, turn out to be valid.
2: In fact, some of the most outrageous-sounding science stories of the past 100 years have actually turned out to be true. Such as? Well... The idea that the continents aren't fixed in place, they're not rooted to the earth, they can slide around on some hot rock.
1: That's right. The whole idea of plate tectonics was considered ludicrous when it was first proposed.
2: Yeah, exactly. Or the idea that you could have small rocks falling from the sky. We we call them meteors now, but, you know, everybody could look up into the sky and say, well, there are no rocks up there. These rocks can't have come from the sky. And yet they did. So how do we distinguish
1: between what's too wild to be true and a genuine scientific breakthrough? I'm Molly Bentley.
2: I'm Seth Shostak, and this is our monthly look at critical thinking, skeptic check from Big Picture Science. And in this episode, we're going to take a look at a handful of claims that would be extraordinary if true. If true. But are they? And how do we know? Plus, why some people persist in believing things when all the evidence is stacked against them. What is science fiction without starring roles, or at least cameo appearances, by aliens?
1: Check out your local movie listings, and there's a good chance that at least one of the films that's playing involves extraterrestrials who, for whatever reason, have decided to include Earth in their
2: travel plans. But those aliens are always of the intelligent kind, you know, the big-eyed grays, or the weird possum-like creatures, even machines who want to just take over the planet or, or maybe get to know you better... But an astrobiologist will tell you the most common cosmic life will be microbial. Tiny and dumb. Not not smart enough or, or big enough to carry a laser gun. Bacteria
1: rule this planet, after all. They far outnumber us. So when we hear the claim that there are bacteria
2: in space, well, what do we make of it? The Russian news agency, itar tass reported in August 2014 that a Russian cosmonaut aboard the International Space Station, the ISS, had discovered algae on the outside of the massive spacecraft. He saw it through the window, or on the window, as the news agency reported, Well, apparently, it looked like sea plankton, if you happen to know what that looks like.
1: The story of space bacteria was then picked up by other news agencies, The Guardian in London, the Christian Science Monitor, the Huffington Post, among others. Some added quotations from scientists not involved with the ISS who said that this discovery was proof that life can survive in space. Others quoted experts who declared that the algae, or whatever it is, was extraterrestrial in origin.
2: Or whatever it is. We don't know what it is. Even the Russian cosmonaut who found this plankton was quoted as saying it needed further study And NASA has not confirmed the reports of anything growing on the ISS.
1: But before you dismiss this report entirely, here's the thing. This is just the kind of scientific claim that straddles the implausible and the possible. There are a few reasonable explanations for algae being camped out on the outside of the space station. Maybe the station was contaminated with plankton when the parts
2: were launched from Earth. But also the idea that life, microbial life, exists and is viable in space... That's scientifically possible. So if this space plankton story turns out to be an actual example of alien life, well, that would be huge. It would be a huge story, the biggest of the century.
1: Lynn Rothschild is an evolutionary biologist and an astrobiologist at NASA Ames Research Center. She was intrigued to hear vague reports that there might be algae growing on the surface of the International Space Station.
4: What's interesting is that there's not actually a lot of facts about this. I believe that they were on some glassy surfaces, but I'm not entirely sure.
2: Okay, so the idea is that one of the Russian cosmonauts saw this this slime as, it I don't know, mold, whatever, <laughs> uh, green gunk, put it that way, on the ISS. Well,
4: one out of three, Seth, closer to the green slime.
2: Okay, so he sees some green slime. What makes him jump to the conclusion that this is... An example of sea plankton, that's a pretty good analysis from through the window if that's how it happened.
4: (laughs) Well, and this is pretty much a guess because I'm finding very little real information, but presumably what they would have done was take a sample and look through a microscope or do some molecular biology on the sample and match it up with organisms that live on the surface of the sea. But again, there seems to be very little information about this. There are no peer-reviewed publications, as far as I can see. In fact, no publications.
2: Now, the NASA reaction has been somewhat skeptical, has it not? But is that based on testimony from other people aboard the ISS maybe not the russians
4: well it would be hard to, it would be hard to really comment seriously without being skeptical when there is so little information but from what we know about previous studies it is a little difficult to believe there've been many many studies done of the survival of microorganisms in space and that includes survival on the surface of ISS of space station and there is no evidence that an organism, even in a spore form, can live for any period of time unless there's some sort of covering. So, for example, some sand or dust or other dead organisms over them.
2: What's the hypothesis for how this could have gotten there? Presumably it didn't float up from the surface of the earth to a couple of hundred miles up. I mean, how, right. high, how high is and, this and, thing? And,
4: well. The space station is about um, 205 miles, about 330 kilometers over the surface of the Earth. We have found live spores of organisms up to about 70 or so kilometers, much, much lower than the orbit of space station. So it seems very unlikely that they would have just wafted up there. Now, there are a couple of sources. One would be that they were there to begin with and that when the motor started to go on and so on, I think that was one hypothesis that the spores could have gone to the surface. Certainly there's a lot of resupply, and actually it occurred to me on the way over to the studio that one of the vehicles that's resupplying space station right now is from SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, and I believe that splashes in the Pacific. So if they're recycling a rocket, it provides a a great, literally, vehicle for getting phytoplankton back up to space station. We don't actually sterilize spacecraft when they go up. And so it's quite possible that there's contamination all the time.
2: Well, presumably the plankton don't have their own space program. So, so it came from Earth. No, nobody's suggesting that this is some sort of life form from outer space, this kind of panspermia idea. that it
4: I would hope not, but I wanted to say that up front because there will be people who jump to that conclusion. We do know people in the world who have been pushing the idea whenever they see something like this that it's coming from outer space. And I think that that is so unlikely as to be basically impossible.
2: Well, give me some idea of what the environment is like on the outside of this. (laughs) And we know what it's like on the inside. The outside of the space station. We know that microbes can survive extreme conditions. Right. There are things called extremophiles. But space is pretty extreme, even for extremophiles. I mean you know it's not just airless but there are extremes of temperature there's the radiation from the sun right. I mean, what's the airless it like?
4: is, is sort of almost the the least of the problems <laughs> and true. of course the low gravity is another issue but much more so for something like a human or a plant than it would be for a microbe so you have temperature you have lack of air, you have a space vacuum, and then you have all these different flavors of radiation. So all of those make it extremely difficult for an organism to survive. Now, we know all life on Earth uses water as a solvent. So when it's very dry, that makes it very difficult in addition to all the problems with the radiation and so on. So many organisms on the earth have resting stages, particularly microbes. So they have a form, the best way to think of it, it's sort of like a seed for a plant, where it can take this form that's very resistant to all sorts of environmental factors and disperse and so on. And we know that some of these can survive in space, but not open to that kind of space environment unless they even have some kind of protection like they're hiding under their brother or something.
2: So this would be not just extremophiles, this would be the extreme extremophiles if if, if it's for real.
4: If they're exposed so that there is no shielding whatsoever and are still surviving even in a spore form, I would be absolutely shocked. The organism that's been used as a model in many of these experiments over the years is Bacillus subtilis. It's a bacterium that forms a highly Resistant spore, and again, even that has been shown not to be able to survive on the surface of space station unless it's hiding under another spore.
2: Does this raise concerns about contamination when it comes to you know landing spacecraft on other worlds, other moons, other planets, and and, and or spacecraft that are coming back to Earth? I mean, there's an entire office of NASA, you know this, called Planetary Protection, and their job is indeed to to avoid contamination. Right, and I
4: think. The average person is worried about contamination from space, but I think what you started off asking was, what about what we call forward contamination, having Earth-based things going forward and contaminating other planets and moon bodies and so on with Earth-based organisms? And there are people who worry about that for ethical reasons, that maybe we shouldn't be spreading our Earth life all over the place. But I think there are more people like me who are really interested in the potential for life elsewhere. I mean, really interested doesn't even begin to describe it. There would be nothing more exciting, I think, to a biologist than finding a second example of life. And if you're bringing up lots of Earth organisms, that may well cloud the issue. It may be very difficult to distinguish what is us and what is them. And again, I'm less concerned about that in terms of an Andromeda strain sort of situation where we all, you know, die of some little Martian microbe, and much more that we have obliterated evidence of what could have been the most exciting biological discovery ever.
2: Okay. Well, those implications are, in fact, I mean, they're serious implications. But I take it from your comments that you're rather skeptical that this actually is an example of sea plankton hugging the skin of the ISS.
4: Well... Again, I would have to see the data, but if there are things hugging it, they're probably under other particles. So it's quite possible that there are living things out there. It's quite possible there's plankton. It's quite possible to believe all this, as long as there's a layer of dust or more over these samples.
2: Lynn Rothschild, thank you so very much for speaking with us today.
1: Thanks very much, Seth. Lynn Rothschild is an evolutionary biologist, and she's an astrobiologist at NASA Ames Research Center.
2: An interesting idea because the thought that microbes might travel through space, an, an idea known as panspermia, you know, that's an old idea and it might be even a true idea. No, nobody really knows. How would one settle this story then? Well, one thing you could do is, you know, essentially you could send the cosmonauts outside the space station and have them scrape some of that stuff, look at it under a microscope, see if you see some DNA, and in particular whether you see some DNA that happens to match that of you know, some, I don't know, sea plankton. I mean, that's quite possible, and that would settle it. What's clear here, though, is
1: that we don't have enough information, that the story came out of Itartas, that was the original source for the story, that had reported that one of its cosmonauts, one of the Russian cosmonauts, had noticed this, and then that story was picked up, and then it was embellished and so forth. And it sounds as though if you follow the embellished stories, you get a pretty fantastic tale. If you go back to the original story as it was reported, it is scaled down quite a bit. The news agency doesn't make any claims that this was algae. The cosmonaut makes does not make those claims, and NASA does not make those claims. They're just saying there's some weird gunk outside the International Space Station, and we need to investigate it.
2: Absolutely. This is a story that outgrew its britches right from the start.
1: Its tiny little bacterial britches.
2: Okay, so there's enough we don't know about the orbiting plankton story, that we should cool our jets, wait for more facts. But sometimes facts alone will not dissuade believers. We'll look at claims of killer asteroids and a supposed rocket that zips through space without shooting anything out the back. But first, why people continue to believe despite all the evidence to the contrary.
1: The journalist Will Storr, the author of The Unpersuadables, Adventures with the Enemies of Science, next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check. Is it true?
5: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
2: We're all susceptible to believing rumor and fantastic claims. But as we heard, when you nose around, when you collect more facts, when you examine the credibility of the source, well, some claims turn out to be uh, as slippery as greased weasels. I personally had a hard time letting go of the possibility that vitamin C would cure my colds, for example.
1: But you would have no hard time letting go of a greased weasel, right? <laughs> have you yeah. ever
2: held one? Uh, only twice, actually.
1: <laughs> okay, I do not believe that. Now, sometimes the idea sticks despite the facts, and even smart people can get caught in the jaws of a far-fetched idea.
2: An idea that's based on hearsay, rumor, stories that begin, you know, my brother's friend's cousin said that, uh, you know, accompanied maybe by a blurry photo of an ape-like creature loping around the woods, low-grade evidence, even contradictory evidence, and yet people continue to believe.
1: And not all unsubstantiated beliefs are benign. Despite the evidence of science, there are some who continue to deny that the planet's climate is changing, and despite the evidence of history, there are some who deny the Holocaust. Journalist Will Storr met one of the latter in England, David Irving, while researching his book on the persistence of irrational and even destructive beliefs. Will Storr's intention was not to debunk the ideas, but to unearth the core psychology of the people who hold them. And one unexpected result was the conclusion that we're all irrationally wedded to our beliefs in one way or another.
2: Will Storr's book is The Unpersuadables, Adventures with the Enemies of Science. Will, we've been hearing about some incredible claims, and we'll hear more in the show, but for example, the presence of algae on the outside of the orbiting International Space Station. If tests after tests are done on the plankton on the space station, and they all come back negative, but there's still this one guy who insists it's space algae, what would you call that guy?
6: I'd call that guy, you know, passionate, convinced, certainly very motivated in getting their point of view across, but I'd also call that guy very probably wrong. But, you know, I've been writing about people with kind of strange beliefs for, you know, a long time now, and the thing that strikes me about a lot of these people is that they're actually very intelligent people, and I think that people underestimate quite how wrong it's possible for people to be and still be convinced they're absolutely right. But that's, you know, that's the power of the brain.
2: Well, let's uh, take a number of characters in your book. Some specific examples here. To begin with, there's John Mack, formerly from Harvard, a Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer. And so you'd think that this guy would know his facts, and yet he wrote about alien abduction. What was it that he specifically believed was happening?
6: John Mack is, is a fascinating example of of exactly that. As you say, you know, this guy won a Pulitzer as a writer. He's no slouch, and he, in his work as a psychiatrist, began seeing lots of people who believe they've been abducted by aliens. is this kind of in the pre-X-files days when uh, this is quite a rare, relatively rare phenomenon. And, you know, it struck him that these people's reports had consistencies, patterns to them, and so this led him down this path of thinking, you know, these people, actually something really is happening to these people. And, you know, of course, he was wrong about that, but in kind of voicing his opinion, he really ran up against huge kind of criticism from his own university who tried to throw him out. You know, this whole process seemed to kind of radicalize him and push him even further down this path of believing that alien abductions are real. Well, I happen to have had a
2: breakfast with John Mack at some point. And he seemed indeed incredibly uh, reasonable and rational. And, and on the face of it, you would say, you know, this is kind of a, an outlier kind of view that maybe some of these people who claim they've been abducted by aliens have actually been abducted by aliens, right? So on the one hand, you had to admire his daring for challenging the conventional wisdom. But on the other hand, the conventional wisdom seemed to be, uh, well, correct.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think you've got to understand. I mean, that's the journey that I went through in within my book was, you know, beginning with quite a cynical view of these kinds of people. You know, thinking, you know, you know these guys are just idiots. You know, I started trying to sort of work out, you know, how have they got to be wrong? How, how have they come to believe the things they believe? And, and to understand that, you've got to you understand how any of us come to believe anything we believe. One of the things that really stuck with me from my research was uh, is a psychologist called Professor Jonathan Haidt, who is, you know, fantastic and you know, one of the world experts in this stuff and you know he told me that if you want to find irrationality uh, you know look for the things that people make sacred the things that people get so emotional about that it becomes such a core of kind of their life's work and their life's mission that they will not brook any criticism. The examples that hate gave me, he says, you know, he says he's a scientist, he believes you know, that man-made climate change is a terrible thing and he, you know, he doesn't doubt it for a second but he doesn't trust the left to tell the truth about climate change because they've made it sacred and by the same token the people on the right have, have made sacred the, you know, the the power of the free markets, the benevolent hand, the invisible hand of the free markets to achieve only good ends. I mean this is something that they've made sacred so you cannot trust them to tell the truth about it. And just so with, uh, with John Mack with his alien abductions, it became sacred to him. But we know we're all like this. We all have things that are sacred to us. We we know we're all wrong about some things that we have no idea we're wrong about. I suppose I'm just trying to say these aren't a different kind of form of human. They're not a different kind of species that we should feel entitled to kind of look down our noses at. These are people just like you and me.
2: Well, this takes on a somewhat different cast, though, if uh, what it is that they believe, I I don't know, it has so much import that... uh, That It's hard for the rest of us to accept that. For example, well, there's a figure in your book, David Irving. He's a Holocaust denier, and you traveled with him to a concentration
6: camp. Can you tell us a little bit about that visit? Sure. I mean, I mean, David Irving. He he's a huge uh, figure in Britain. You know, he really is the heretic. I mean, he's a he's a great example. He's a historian who has been studying the history of the Second World War since the 50s and 60s, and he started off doing fantastic work. You know, he was a hugely well-respected historian uh, until he started to kind of question some of the kind of shibboleths of of Second World War history, and he went through a brief period, two or three period of Holocaust denial. He's not Holocaust denial. more, it's important to acknowledge, but he certainly has a history of extreme revisionism, and he still believes, believe it or not, <laughs> that Hitler was a friend of the Jews. So he's got this thing about Hitler. He thinks that the Holocaust was organised by Hitler's subordinates, and if Hitler knew about the Holocaust, he would have been horrified. Uh, so he's kind of a hero for real Holocaust deniers and for kind of neo-Nazis. And now he, he to make money, he organises these annual trips to Eastern Europe to visit concentration camps and places like this, where he gives kind of guided tours to his kind of faith and tells them all the reasons, you know, why the history as we believe it is wrong. You, so, you, I mean, you were in one of those tours, right? Because yeah, you, you
2: went to the gas chambers and, and he said, well, these are phony gas chambers. Uh, he said there were door handles on the inside. Were, were you there when he said that?
6: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, was, it was absolutely shocking. It was a, a place called Majdanek uh, where you know, 78,000 people were, were killed. Uh, well, of course, David Irving said it was more like 50,000 at the time. And uh, yeah, so we were in the gas chambers and there was a tour group of, I think there were Russian uh, schoolgirls there, so, you know, in tears, a lot of them, because of how traumatic the uh, experience was of being there. And he started barracking the group, saying, you know, these are are, are air raid blast doors, you know, those are CO2 canisters, they're not poisonous gas canisters. There was a kind of rudimentary U-shaped handle on the inside of the door and he was pointing at this thing, saying, look, you know, if this was a gas chamber, why would they have handles on the inside of the door? Because you're just not going to let yourself out. Of a homicidal gas chamber, but on the outside of the door there was these huge bolts, like two enormous bolts uh, that, that would lock, and you could see there was airtight seals around this door. And uh, you know, all the way back, it was a long trip back to um, Warsaw to a hotel, and all the way back, he was just going on and on and on about these these handles. And it was almost as if he just hadn't seen these bolts; they just hadn't existed for him. They hadn't, they weren't real for him. Well, you surely, it, you surely pointed them out. I mean, what what was his response? I you... surely did not point them out. I was under. Cover. I think i might have <laughs> pointed them out. Um, I might have been in some trouble. Yeah, it was. I was there pretending that I was one of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have let me anywhere near the group. Believe me. So I mean, it was quite well it's quite a, a nervous week i <laughs> spent with these guys to put it to put it mildly but you know this is this is um a rather extreme form of confirmation bias i mean this is this is a, you know a process that is completely ordinary that we all go through you know that we that we only see and recognize evidence which backs up the beliefs we already have any evidence that we come across that might contradict beliefs we have we we dismiss it we deny it we forget it you know this is very standard stuff so although david irving is a, you know he's one of these guys he's he's an unusually extreme Example of somebody you know with false beliefs. He's only exhibiting the same traits and processes that we all have.
2: What comes through in your exploration in the book is your growing uncertainty about, well, certainty, uh, you know, that we all believe that our own beliefs are the correct ones. Now, in the case of David Irving and denying the Holocaust, I mean, uh, i think I think that that verdict is definitely in. Yeah. but on the other hand, you know there are some other cases where it's not so clear. And so does that mean that we have to consider every point of view valid? I mean, you know, how, how do you weigh these sorts of controversies?
6: Well, of course, you know, I go back to the scientific process. I mean, you know, the, the idea that I, that I kind of came across in the book and I develop in the book is this is the notion that we all, you know, we don't live in a rational world. We live in a world of narrative, you know, that the brain makes us the hero in this at the center of the universe in this kind of dramatic heroic plot it's usually a david and goliath plot you know we're struggling against these great foes to make a better life and we have heroes allies that we you know are are an array of optimism biases give them these halos we think they're wonderful the people that that are against us we vilify them we're tribal people you know we're unfair to them Uh, it's these processes that that lead to irrationality and the brilliant genius thing that the human you know, race has come upon to kind of break apart these processes is the scientific method, of course. I mean, the scientific method is amazing at getting rid of bias and, if it's working well, leaving only fact. And, of course... I'm not naive enough to believe the scientific method is perfect. On the macro view, you know, it moves very slowly and difficultly. You know, consensus is is made sometimes in very bad temper. And if you go down to the level of individual scientists, you know, you get the same arguments and biases and prejudices you you might get, you know, in in your local pub. But, yes, I mean, I'm a great believer in the scientific method. You know, it works. You also write about
2: sceptics, professional skeptics and their self-righteousness that they feel, you know, they're they're kind of immune to the prejudices of deciding what's true and what's not. Could you give me an example of that?
6: Yeah, yeah, I mean this this is I mean again this goes back to what hate said and I think it's absolutely true is as soon as people become very emotional about a subject they stop being rational actors. They might feel like they're being rational actors, but they're not being rational actors. An example I spend quite a lot of time investigating is a guy called James Randi, who's, who's quite well-known in the States, very well-known and a kind of an icon for people like Richard Dawkins, people on the sceptic atheist movement. And people on the other side, uh, you know, these people, these kind of woo people who believe in ESP and psychic dogs and this, that and the other, have been saying for years that James Randi is a very dubious character, that he's been guilty of lying. On a, on a number of occasions that he's a kind of a bully. Uh, and yet this guy is held up in, you know as a genius, as an icon. He's the editor of the Sceptic magazine in the UK, calls him the patron saint of the sceptic movement. So I spent a couple of months investigating him. I confronted uh, James Randi with some of these accusations. And to his uh, great credit, he admitted to me in the interview that, you know, in his words, there have been untruths. And, and I, it's just a perfect example of, you know, people will just ignore any evidence that, that contradicts the beliefs they already have, they will just ig- ignore it. And people in the sceptical atheist movement is just as vulnerable to these, um, these distortions as the rest of us.
2: Well, finally, Will, I get uh, phone calls, emails, and so forth from uh, lots of people who believe things, uh, usually involving aliens in my case, but, you know, that uh, strike me as highly doubtful and so forth. If, if you were taking those phone calls, what would you say to them that might help them get at uh, what uh, the rest of us, <laughs> whatever that means would call the truth?
6: Well, uh, yeah, people often ask me, okay, so you're saying that people never change their minds, but, you know, if you wanted to change somebody's mind, how could you change their mind? And I think what all this has taught me is that one way you don't change people's minds is by laughing at them, shouting at them, you know, throwing facts in their face. You know, what you have to tell them is a story that they can believe in, which kind of leads to a you know, a different conclusion. You know, in the UK, a a lot of the people on the right wing have got this irrational dread of immigrants, the immigrants that come here. and Actually, our economy relies very much on the immigrants that come here. You know, and so an example might be that instead of giving them all the economic arguments about how how we rely on the immigrants, immigrants, you know, pick our cabbages and they our nurses in hospitals, you tell them a story which would appeal to somebody with a right-wing kind of brain about somebody who, who wanted to take care of their family and took great risks to come over here and start from scratch and all they want to do is work hard and pay their taxes and, you know, make industry of their lives. I mean, so, you know... It's, If you want to change somebody's life, you don't attack them in a kind of direct way. You just tell them a different story that they can believe in. Will Storr, thanks so very much for speaking with us. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for talking to me.
1: Will Storr is the author of The Unpersuadables, Adventures with the Enemies of
2: Science. I have to say that uh, this really resonates with me, this idea that people are wedded emotionally to their beliefs. When I talk to people about climate change, UFOs, that sort of thing, you quickly find that the the argument is it's seldom rational. It's not based on facts anymore. It's based on emotions.
1: Right. It's rooted in identity. And Will explains why that is why it's so hard to get people to change their minds because you're really not debating the facts. Um, You're debating something that is much more dear to them, which is who they are.
2: Yeah. You're questioning indeed. In some sense, their very existence, at least as they see it themselves. (laughs)
1: Well, there may or may not be algae in space, but there certainly are a lot of asteroids out there, comets as well. And it would seem that a fair number of them have Earth's name on them, if you believe the news stories. But the truth is, one day a killer rock will slam into Earth. So when you hear a report of a nearby comet or asteroid heading this
2: way, well, how nervous should you be? We'll find out. Plus, and perhaps you read this report, inventors have designed a rocket engine that can go forever, but nothing comes out. It's a closed box. Closed box, and yet you turn it on and it starts accelerating through space. Well, if this is true, it would really ease our way into the final frontier. It's skeptic check. Is it true? from Big Picture Science, our monthly look at critical thinking.
0: A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with WIRED wherever you get your podcasts.
2: We're examining science news stories that seem too extraordinary to be true. And our brains are trying to separate the fact from the fiction. Coming up, a comet that might have Earth's name on it. At least that's one version of what's making the rounds. But first, a report of an astonishing development
1: in engineering, one that, if it's valid, would change space travel and maybe all travel.
2: Now, when NASA or ESA or the Russians want to go into space, basically, they set fire to a tank of kerosene. I mean, there's more to it, obviously, but that's the idea. The result is a rocket that offers that satisfying roar as it's launched, and one that has enough thrust to lift into space at 25,000 miles per hour and escape Earth's gravity. However, if the aforementioned news story is true, then the traditional methods of space travel, well, they're going to look like something from the Stone Age.
1: Now, for years, there were claims by some inventors that they had developed a rocket engine that doesn't burn anything, no fuel, and therefore no exhaust. It requires only an energy source, sunlight, nuclear fusion, or whatever, to keep accelerating.
2: See, rockets always have an energy source, of course, but they also have stuff on board that they shoot out the back, the propellant. But this invention, supposedly, would never run out of propellant because it just doesn't use propellant. The name of this device? A quantum vacuum plasma thruster. I mean, that just rolls off the tongue. The inventor, a British scientist named Roger Shawyer. He calls it the M drive, but it just seems too good to be true.
1: Researchers at NASA's Johnson Space Flight Center have tested the M drive and they've reported that it actually works, meaning it seems to generate thrust without anything coming out
2: of the engine. If it works, it would be a breakthrough in space propulsion. But it also seems to violate Newton's third law. Remember that? For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So you need that action, you need that thrust to get the reaction, which is the rocket moving along. So how do we make sense of a story that seems to hinge on valid science and could be an extraordinary development, but just seems too good to be true? Steve Novella
1: is an assistant professor at the Yale University School of Medicine, and he is the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. He specializes in taking a quizzical look at anything that seems too good to be true.
7: This is one of the holy grails, right? Everyone would love to invent one of these things, a so-called propellantless drive.
2: Okay, well, this sounds like, uh, you know, the holy grail of rocketry. I mean, suddenly the idea of this Starship Enterprise sounds like, well, maybe it's possible. I I don't know about this thing going faster than light, but if it can go forever without having to carry fuel, that sounds good to me. How does this thing work?
7: That's obviously the rub, right? I mean, so the proponents think that by bouncing microwaves around inside a chamber that is shaped in a certain way— there are these slots that are on one side of the chamber, that the bouncing microwaves will push on one side more than the other. And this asymmetry would result in a net thrust in that direction. That's the idea anyway. There really isn't any rigorous physics behind it. And of course, that's the problem, that it seems to violate the conservation of momentum. And you know, conservation laws in science are, among the most well-established, and you don't violate them lightly.
2: Well, it sounds as if the rocket itself is just what I would call a klystron or a magnetron. I mean, just a radar transmitter as they built them during the Second World War. You say it's just bouncing off the walls, but it it, it bounces a little harder on one wall than the other wall. What's special about that one wall? I mean, it doesn't seem to make any sense, even aside from the fact that it violates freshman physics.
7: Yeah. No, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. I don't really know, you know how they could get from there to you know, producing thrust in one direction. It seems like you know, you're whizzing magnets around saying it's going to produce endless energy. You know what I mean? It doesn't quite make sense either. This is the free energy device of thrust, basically.
2: Now, I believe there were some guys at NASA's Johnson Space Flight Center who actually took a model of this kind of device into the lab and tested it. What'd they find? They found so-called anomalous thrust,
7: meaning that they had a tiny, teeny, tiny bit of thrust that they could not account for through any known physics. They didn't conclude that the drive worked. They didn't conclude anything about the cause of this anomalous thrust, just that they had this little residue of thrust that they couldn't account for. But there's a lot of details that we got to get into before we put this into perspective. One is that they tested a version of the device that was configured to function and a version of the device that was configured not to function, that didn't have the features that are supposed to produce the asymmetry, and they both produced the anomalous thrust. So it seems that the design, anyway, doesn't seem to have any impact on what these NASA scientists
2: measured. Well, that sounds a little bit suspicious, if I can volunteer that opinion.
7: Yeah, it's like the placebo working as well as a drug. You know, you don't conclude they both work. You conclude that there's no difference, you know, that neither work. So that's the big problem. Also, this is a problem in general with fringe science that's built upon finding a tiny anomaly, whether it's anomalous energy, anomalous thrust, anomalous cognition or ESP, that what the researchers are finding are these tiny little residues that they cannot account for and then they're saying all we have to do is scale that up that little residue that's evidence that the phenomenon is real that our claims are true but when you have something that you're measuring that that is that tiny the big problem is is that tiny errors can account for it really subtle effects that you may not have accounted for entirely can be producing that so essentially such small effects are overwhelmingly more likely to be just noise in the system than some new physics that's going to cause us to rewrite the physics
2: textbooks and redesign our space fleet. (laughs) Well, the NASA engineers seem to be being quiet about their test. We were told that they are, and I quote now, not available for comment at this time which I found a little bit strange because the report is published, at least the abstract was, why are they being mum? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a conference paper. It wasn't published in the peer-reviewed literature.
7: You know, that's their job to explore any new out-of-the-box kind of thinking. Uh, those were the scientists who did this. Uh, some of them have a history of... Supporting things like faster than light drive that may not be popular in the scientific community. I don't know. I can't read their mind, but maybe they're getting more attention and maybe negative attention. So they're just trying to lay low for a while, I guess. Or maybe they're doing some retests and they're going to publish something and they don't want to talk until they give us new data. We'll see. And I also think it's kind of misleading to talk about, quote-unquote, NASA, as if this is some kind of big official NASA project. It's five guys at NASA among the 1,800 or so employees that NASA has. You know what I mean? NASA's a big place. I don't think this is a necessarily a NASA project. It's kind of the pet project of a couple of guys at NASA. So, but you're right. The NASA name gets attached to it. That's what everybody reports. And I think that maybe NASA as an institution should say something about this. They could use this as a teaching moment to reassure everybody that they're still on the ball and they're not promoting nonsense. Steve Novella, thanks so very much for talking with us. It's a pleasure, Seth. I'm always happy to come on the show.
1: Steve Novella teaches at Yale University School of Medicine, and he's the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. Well, this sounds like an extraordinary device. How does one determine if this quantum vacuum plasma thruster is for real?
2: Well, if you can say it, it's for real. No, that's not it. Look, I think the difficulty here is that the effect is very, very small. Okay, they measured a little bit of thrust, tiny amounts, and that is always a questionable thing in science because you may be getting a small effect because of reasons that have nothing to do with the the device, actually, the way the device works.
1: And so do you expect that NASA scientists, NASA engineers will go back and, and test the M drive further?
2: Well, it's so interesting, if it's true, that I'm sure they will do. And if they don't, there will be plenty of others.
1: Okay, so we'll stay tuned to that story.
2: Yes, Yes. See if it picks up speed. I was going to say, you've got the thrust. Well, speaking of heavy subjects, what about apocalypse? I mean, <laughs> when talk... Nice,
1: well, nice segue.
2: When people talk about apocalypse today, I mean, they're seldom invoking the types of catastrophes that were popular in biblical times, you know, like locusts. <laughs> locusts are unpleasant, that's for sure, but they never wiped out an entire species unlike asteroids. Asteroids are always getting attention because, after all... The ever-popular dinosaurs fell victim to one about 65 million years ago. Now, no one wants to make that mistake again, so it's understandable that we all get a little nervous whenever we hear that an asteroid or a comet is in our backyard. Well, we do hear about such things from time to time, an asteroid or a comet whose
1: trajectory may put it on a collision course with Earth, or in one case recently, on a near-collision course with one of our neighbors.
2: Astronomers have identified a comet, called C-2013A1, or Siding Spring, in honor of the uh, Australian observatory where it was found, that's passing very close to Mars. And one concern is that our little ruddy buddy might give this rock a gravitational jerk and send it hurtling our way. Now, that sounds like something to be worried about, unless, of course, it's hyperbolic scaremongering, which has been known to happen with stories in the news about rocks in space.
1: So which is this? Dave Morrison is a space scientist at the SETI Institute.
2: Dave, there's a comet in the news, citing Spring
3: is its mellifluous name, and it's going to graze Mars on October
8: 19th. How close will it come? It'll come within about 100,000 miles of Mars, which is not real close. It's 10 Mars diameters from this planet itself.
2: Well, is there any chance that we got the orbit wrong or that it could be deflected and it could actually
8: slam into the red planet? There's always uncertainty in orbits. That's not just a matter of chance, it's real, but the uncertainties are small, so no, this will not hit Mars.
3: Okay, well, I hate to be a downer here, but, you know, is it conceivable that this thing could be slingshotted by Mars' gravity into a new orbit and eventually target Earth?
8: Absolutely not. Its orbit will be modified, going by Mars, but it's going far enough from Mars, it's not going to change its direction and come hit us. We're a long way from its current path.
3: Mm. What if a comparably-sized comet were to hit our
8: world? What makes it hard to answer that question is we don't know how big the solid nucleus of Comet Siding Springs is. It's probably of the order of a mile or two, which means if it hit a city, it'd be too bad. The city would be gone. If it were 10 or 20 miles across, then you're talking about something on the scale of the KT, the end-Cretaceous extinction that did away with the dinosaurs. A comet this size could do a
3: lot of damage. Rocks from space. There are literally billions of them out there in the outer
2: reaches of our solar system. So this isn't a threat that's going to go away. This is a perennial problem, and not just for us. This would be a problem for any society
8: on any planet, right? That's absolutely right. If you live in a solar system like the Earth, where there are leftover materials like comets and asteroids, then you will be bombarded from time to time. It's just a part of living in the solar system or any other solar system. It doesn't mean it's going to happen next Tuesday. <laughs> well,
3: speaking of next Tuesday, on September 6, asteroid
2: 2014RC, another good name, I have to say, passed 10 times closer to the Earth
3: than, than the moon is. How big is 2014RC? Do we know? Is it more than just a
8: dot on a, on a photograph? It's not much more than a dot, so we estimate its size from its brightness. And it's sort of the size of a house or a whale, which means it's a little bit smaller than the meteor that plunged through the atmosphere and exploded above Chelyabinsk a year and a half ago.
2: Okay, well, I'm I'm comforted by that. I'm also comforted by the fact that this thing, it's 10 times closer than the moon, but that still puts it 25,000
3: miles out into space. What that, That's a, the circumference of the Earth or something like that. So there's really no
8: danger from this rock at all. No danger to Earth, no danger to our satellites in orbit around the Earth. It's just one of those things that happens all the time, but until we started telescopic surveys, we wouldn't have known it. Well, you say no danger even to our
3: satellites, but geosynchronous satellites are 22,000 miles up. This is uh, in that
8: ballpark. It's well above the geosynchronous satellites, so I don't look for any effects. It's just interesting that the public hears about these now. They've happened all the time. There's an object that comes that close every few weeks, but we're just beginning to learn about them.
2: Well, Dave, people will routinely talk about the end of the Earth, the end of the world, the end of humanity. They even predict that such things are going to happen on a certain date, which I always admire. And that way you can at least mark your calendar. (laughs) But sometimes they suggest that this end will be precipitated by a giant asteroid slamming into our planet. How can we know when we should believe these
3: sorts of things and when we should just say, you know, forget it, it's all nonsense? If someone tells
8: you that there are giant asteroids and comets out there that could conceivably someday hit the Earth, that is absolutely correct. But we don't know of any. There's not a single asteroid now in an Earth-crossing orbit as big, for instance, as the one that did in the dinosaurs. So at this particular time and for millions of years in the future, we're not at risk of extinction.
3: I take it something like 2014RC, however, was not on anybody's list. It's too small to have been seen by the reconnaissances that have been done so far for these things.
8: That's absolutely true. We have spent a lot of time and energy surveying for near-Earth asteroids that could hit the Earth. But our size limit is is up there in the 100-meter range or bigger, ones that could still wipe out a city but but nothing smaller. This one is way smaller than that. Not only have we not found it and others like it, but we really don't care about them. It's the bigger ones we care about.
2: Well, finally, Dave, uh, this is one of these types of phenomena, now I'm talking about asteroids and comets and so forth, one of these types of phenomena that are potentially very dangerous, but also where you get a lot of, you know, if you will, near misses, false alarms, rocks that sail by at one-tenth the, the distance to the moon and so forth, uh, And we don't worry about those. They're not going to hit us. But do you think that maybe these sorts of close calls, which always make it into the press, which are always news stories, are desensitizing the public to the fact that there is a fundamental threat here?
8: That's a very good question. At one level, of course, they do sensitize people. You learn that there are space rocks that go past the Earth. What we have to avoid is a chicken little sort of thing, you know, claiming that everyone is a risk because most of them aren't. So you have to strike a balance. People should understand the natural environment of the earth, including the rocks that come by. But they shouldn't stay up at night worrying about it. Do you stay up at night worrying about it? I do not worry about it, but I honestly think it is our duty as scientists to think about how we could deal with this hazard and even eliminate
3: it completely for the future. Dave Morrison, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
8: Thank you.
1: Dave Morrison is a space scientist at the SETI Institute. Well, it sounds like there's no danger on the horizon from
2: asteroids or comets, it seems. Yeah, the next couple of decades look like there's none that's going to hit us that's so big that it would, you know, could... could wipe out life on Earth or do the kind of damage that was done to the dinosaurs. But there are plenty of small ones that we don't know about that could hit us.
1: So what does this tell us about how to pay attention to stories about asteroids or comets that are coming our way? Because these stories are in the news.
2: They are. And I think that the answer is, first off, always be a little bit skeptical if this sounds, you know, a little dramatic. If the story is too dramatic, does it seem reasonable What about the source? Who's telling you this? Is it a reliable source or is it just, you know, I don't know, a website somewhere and nobody else? And for me, one of the most important things to ask yourself is, are other scientists following up on this? Because if they're not, that means there are thousands of experts, specialists in that field who've looked at that evidence and said, you know what? I don't think this thing has legs. I don't think it's true.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of a program thanks to a production team to which we are certain we owe our gratitude, Gary Niederhoff and
2: Barbara Vance. Also, support from Rena Scholsky, david and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced here at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Whose ears have been attuned to Skeptic Check, is it true? You'll find
1: an archive of Big Picture Science episodes, including Skeptic Check, on our website, bigpicturescience.org. But don't take our word for it. Do some investigation yourself. BigPictureScience.org. And while you're online, why not save yourself the time it takes to do multiple clicks and download our Big Picture Science app. You can find it on iTunes, Android, and Windows
2: 8. And if you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, well, it feels more reliable, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, we could consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, and do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion, or Want to surprise us with some praise? Write us at BigPictureScience at SETI.org.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimburger Family Foundation. At the Trimburger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimburger.org.
2: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch.